Let's go to the Lord in prayer now, and then we will continue on. Father, help us now as your word is open before us. Speak to us through it. What we are not, Father, we pray that you would make us. What we do not have, we pray that you would give us. And what we do not know, we pray that you would teach us so that we might be profitable and useful servants in your hand. Father, I pray especially that you would use this message to challenge we, the men of this church, as leaders of our homes, and those whom you will call in the future to lead this church. Father, may we take special heed to this and lead because we have been changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we lead not only with our words, but may we lead with our lives as well impacting those around us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's pick up in verse number 4 of 1 Timothy chapter 3, having covered the first half of this chapter in previous weeks. Speaking of the one who would be qualified to lead in the church of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul again writes to Timothy who is struggling to... uh, establish this church and strengthen this church at Ephesus, he writes this, speaking of the man who would lead, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. It's interesting as one who loves history, as I've gone back here on what we in America look at as a very historical weekend, and to read some of the early constitutions of some of the commonwealths and republics that comprised the United States in its early days and to read where in their constitutions they required not only that their ministers be faithful in meeting these qualifications, but they required their politicians to meet them as well. Can you imagine that? Saying, now before you run for public office, we'd like you to read 1 Timothy 3 and see if this is true of you, and if it's not, don't waste your time. Men were held to high standards many years ago and high standards based upon the Word of God. I submit that as men who claim to love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we must also be faithful to fulfill these obligations in our life with the Lord's help. And so we want to continue doing that this morning. Let's begin there where Paul begins in verse 4. He must be a manager of his own home. He must be one who leads well in his own home. Nowhere is a well-ordered life more apparent than it is at home. Nowhere is our consistency as a believer more tested and on display than it is in our homes. Does that mean our homes are perfect? No, they are not. But there ought to be something of Christ and a consistency for Christ that characterizes one who would lead the church of Jesus Christ. And again, this is written specifically to those who would lead the church of Jesus Christ, but it is not as... as if it is exclusive to them. This ought to be the prayer and the goal of every believer. To live a consistent and godly life by those and in front of those who know us best. When we think about God's design for the church and relation to God's design for the home, we understand this, that, that our marriages and our children are the greatest tool, they are the greatest gift They are the most powerful examples of the gospel of Jesus Christ on this earth. When Jesus, or when I should, rather I should say God, the entire triunity of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, want to communicate something to us about the gospel or about God's work in time and in history, God always capstones those moments with the illustration of marriage, with the illustration of the home. God's crowning work in creation was the marriage of Adam and Eve and the offspring they were to bear. God's crowning jewel in all of history is the salvation of mankind through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is referenced as being our bridegroom and we His bride. 
in the final analysis when we get to the end of Scripture, the book of Revelation, when the church is taken home gloriously to be with God and our Savior forever, it is that the bride has come home. And there is a marriage supper of the Lamb. The home and that relationship speaks powerfully to the Gospel. And God chooses to use it more than any other human institution to represent the greatest truths. So it's no surprise then that when it comes to one who would lead the church that he is leading in his own home in this way that the Gospel and Christ are known and seen and, in, and loved by those whom he leads at home. John MacArthur writes this, all leadership seeks to accomplish one goal, influence. What a man is will influence his followers to be fully committed to what he says. People won't listen if they don't first see. But what they see, they will most often listen to, and what they see will men be what we are. We must be not just say and not just do in a hypocritical way. We must be what we would desire others to be. And I think we see that, don't we, in the world all around us? We, we can lament the wickedness we see around us. We can wonder how it is that people buy into these things, these ideologies and these systems. And, and what we discover in the end is this isn't just what they said. This isn't just what they did. It's what they were. It's what those leaders of the movement were that caused them to have such influence. And if we desire to counter that for the glory of God and for the good of His church and the good of our families, men, we must be something. We must be those who pursue holiness so that our influence is always leading those who are around us to pursue the same thing we are and therefore that we speak of. Hosea chapter 4, verse 9 Hosea writes this, and in his day it was condemnation, but it could also apply in a positive sense. He says this, and it will be like people, like priests. As the leaders go, so go the people who follow them. Men, God calls all of us to holiness. To lead by example and following the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just what we say, but what we do who we are. Peter says that an elder is not just one who receives a certain type of education or a certain level of education or who gains a certain you know, following among people. He says this, uh, that, that, that elders prove to be examples to the flock. 1 Peter 5.3 That's what an elder does. He is an example to the flock. Leadership, by example, therefore, must start at home and it must be first reflected at home. And so we see that as we get to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, we have now moved strictly out of the area of what the elder is in his personal life, verses 1 through 3. We now see that is the, the sphere of what an elder must be expands to his home life. Let me just try to be helpful here for a moment and spell out what Paul is not saying. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4 is not stating that an elder must have children. Any more than what we discovered in the text of 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 and 2, is that when he speaks of uh, the elder being the husband of one wife, he is not simply referring to one's marital status. Rather, he is to be a morally upright man, a one-woman man. And we enumerated all the ways that that must be true of a man. You can have a, a man who just because he wears a ring and has vows uh, sad and has a piece of paper saying he's married he is not necessarily a one-woman man if he is a flirt or if he is unfaithful to his wife in any way that is to disqualify himself it's not just about divorce as some have tried to make this, this is a higher standard than that so it is uh, uh, just as that doesn't require the elder to be married but if he is married he must be a faithful man to his marriage vows so here, the speaking to the elder of children and how the elder raises children doesn't necessarily mean he must have children, but based on the way things normally happen in life, God created men and women, men and women for the most part to mean marriage. He meant marriage to mean children. 
And so he is assuming what is just normal created design. But as we all know, God doesn't give the gift of marriage to every person and he doesn't give the gift of children to every marriage. That is in the Lord's hands. And it's no condemnation if that is not true of a man who would be an elder. But if he does have children, he must lead in a certain way. Secondly, it does not mean that the elder's children must be perfect. Certainly no one has perfect children, not even pastors. I love my children. They're here this morning. But they're not perfect, and they know they're not perfect. They're sinners in need of God's grace, as we all are. And so it's not a, not a demand that the elder's children be perfect. That would be to put a demand upon an elder or a pastor and his family that is not put upon anyone else. It's to demand something of them that is an unnatural, unbearable weight that is not true of anybody. And so it's not saying that the elders' children or the pastors' children, those who lead in the church, that their children must necessarily be perfect. It doesn't happen. It's not possible. Nor does it mean, as some have indicated from Titus chapter 1, verse 6, in a parallel passage to this, that the elders' children have to be believers. Notice what Paul writes to Timothy, and he says uh, that the children must be under control with all dignity. But when we come to Titus chapter 1, verse 6, if you want to turn over there for a moment, it says this, that he must have children who believe. Now, that presents a major hurdle as we read these qualifications because as we know, none of our salvation is, number one, is is our own doing. It's the Lord's doing, right? It's by grace. But certainly, we cannot force salvation upon anyone. We can't force anyone to be saved no matter how Badly, we may want them to know Jesus as their Savior. That, that isn't, that isn't uh, an unrealistic expectation for anyone. Rather, when Paul writes to Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, it's an unfortunate translation into English that it has been most often translated as having children who believe when rather the word is most often translated in the New Testament as children who are faithful it's most commonly translated that way rather than believing. And yet, for whatever reason, some of the Bible translations, and historically it's been true in English, that they have chosen to go the route with believing. Only the New English translation and the New King James Version get it right by translating it as faithful rather than believing. And so the, to demand that an elder have believing children does a couple of things that are not, uh, not reasonable, not consistent with Scripture. Number one, it would disqualify a man whose children are too young to believe. It would disqualify a man whose children are, are newborns or a year old who don't comprehend the gospel that, that maybe even are a little older than that and just haven't yet come to a point where the Holy Spirit has brought them to saving faith in Christ would disqualify that man. That would be inconsistent. It would also, again, place an unattainable burden on an elder to do something in his own children that he is unable to do in anybody else's life. If I could force my own children to believe, then I should be able to force you to believe. And we know that is not possible. That's a work of the Spirit alone. It, 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 it smacks of pride. It smacks of dependence upon human ability rather than depending upon what the Scripture says about salvation being a work of God and a work of God alone that He would bring someone to the point of believing in Him. It denies the doctrines of election and other truths taught throughout the New Testament. So that can't be what Paul is saying. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying this. The qualified elder, the qualified man who would lead the church of Jesus Christ is one who leads his life and leads his home in a well-ordered way. He manages his home the way he manages his own life. He must manage. That's the translation for some translations would say he is to rule his own house well. 
It's not a dictator, though. It's a shepherd, a manager who stewards God's possession. Our families are precious and prized possessions from the Lord. Today marks 23 years of marriage happiness and bliss to my bride at 11 o'clock in the morning we were married on july 3rd 1999 in akron ohio and it's been a joy ever since and i realized one thing my wife is a gift i don't deserve her my children are a gift i don't deserve them and so a man who understands that it Family is a gift of the Lord, is one who will manage diligently. He won't be a dictator, nor will he be absent without leave from leading his family. He is one who loves and seeks to shepherd and guide and lead by example, to teach and to provide for and to feed them spiritually. Men, we are called to be stewards of this precious gift. Stewards of our influence. We will influence one way or the other. And what Paul is doing here is saying that the man who leads the church of Jesus Christ must be one who leads by his influence. Shepherding them well. The call is to lead. The call is to do it well. Are we doing that? Are we leading our families well? Are we leading them to Christ by our example? John Kitchen points out in his commentary, this is not dictatorial plotting of each step, but managing the whole sphere in which children exercise freedom of choice within well-managed boundaries and spheres. We teach them, we give principle, we give structure, and then we allow them to develop as God would have them develop within those boundaries. A man who leads the church of Jesus Christ must be one who manages his own house and leads his own house well in this way. And his children, then what is Paul saying? His children are to be well-ordered. They're to be disciplined and they're to follow the example of their father and his teaching. They're a credit to his leadership. They speak well of his leadership. They don't follow out of servile fear, but they follow from the heart because that's what daddy does. That they, they follow willingly because that's how my father leads. And he's reached the heart of his children. And, and here's the real point of this. If a man can't reach the heart of the children closest to him, how is he going to reach the hearts of people who don't live in his own home? He must be one who can reach the heart with love, with affection, with a steady hand, with a guiding hand, with a caring hand, with an informed hand. This is what God is calling elders to. They must be this, Paul says. They must demonstrate that they could lead the church by showing how they led the home. It's their resume, if you will. And the children, rather than living in a profligate lifestyle that undermines the teaching of their father, they want to follow the teaching of their father. They're under his authority in a way that's not cold, but there's a warmth of dignity about it. Man, if there's anything missing in our culture today, it's dignity. At first blush. There's no dignity to anything anymore. There's no solemnity. There's no preciousness uh, to anything. There's no value to anything. We're a throwaway, disposable culture. Rather than valuing the dignity of life itself or the way we treat one another. A father who leads well is one who leads to the point of dignity and leads with dignity and leads with compassion and discipline and all of those things. The the father must teach his children so that he is giving them instructive discipline. And where instructive discipline fails, there is corrective discipline that helps bring them back to instructive discipline so that they are what God would have them to be. There's no place here, as Paul is saying this, though, however, for intimidation or force. Intimidation and force are poor substitutes for godly leadership. You can't force them. Heavy-handedness will not work 
legalism will not work. The end is important, but so is the means of getting them to the end. How do we lead, man? How are we leading? And if a man leads well in his home, then he is worthy to be considered for leadership then in the church. That's Paul's point. May God help us then as we exercise that leadership by strong fatherly discipline. I want want you to listen to what this looks like. The book of Proverbs is a book written by a father to his son. It's tender. It's precious. But it's powerful. And he doesn't say to his son, my son, you will do this or else. My son, do this or else. Notice how many times he says this. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 7. My sons, listen. Proverbs 7, 24. My sons, listen to me. Proverbs 8.32, O sons, listen to me. Proverbs 19.27, don't cease listening, my son. Proverbs 23, verse 19, listen, my son. Over and over and over again. How does the man of God lead in his home? Listen to me. Hear my words and watch my life. Wisdom leads in this way, and it leads to that love and respect and that dignity that desires to follow what the leader is following. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul's model. He would often say something to the effect of, follow me as I follow Christ. As you see me following someone, follow me so that ultimately you are following Him as well. It's obedience that comes from love rather than just stark, cold obedience out of servile fear. They do it because they want to rather than because they have to. We know what that looks like as parents, right? You tell your children to clean their room and you get this. And they may be in there doing it, but you know they're not happy about it. How much more joyful is it when you say, hey, son, daughter, let's clean up, let's help mom, let's serve mom by cleaning up our bedroom, okay? Okay, dad. So much more joyful, right? You're less drained at the end of the day after that. You lead with love. You lead with wisdom. You lead with an understanding of why we do what we do. Out of love, out of concern, out of compassion, out of dignity. The elder who rules his house well understands this. He's not one who provokes his children, but rather rules by cultivating their heart out of love so that obedience is readily and joyfully rendered by his children. I submit this to you to consider there are far too many exasperated children in our churches today. Far too many. And the problem's not always them. We talk at length about the problem of children leaving the church. And we've diagnosed, I think successfully, many of the reasons why that has happened. But one I rarely hear people talk about when we speak of the heartbreak of children leading the, leaving the church may be, in far too many cases I fear, the biggest culprit. And that is too many children are leaving the church because their hearts left their fathers long before they walked out the doors. They resent their father rather than wanting to follow their father. And that's not saying there's such a thing as a perfect formula that if if you do X, Y, and Z, then you'll get this result. It's not true. It happens despite our best efforts and intentions at times. And yet because dad lived a poor example in front of him, that's really what Paul is getting at. Those who have led poorly in their homes their children see that and as a result they hate the church because if that's what dad is associated with i want nothing to do with it with all dignity with all respect with the right manner of behavior we are to lead in the homes as our little churches the puritans were always fond of calling the family in the home a little church and every father and minister to lead and disciple and guide his own family well. And so Paul asks the question, if you can't do that at home, what makes us think you could do that on a broader scale with people you don't know as well and with people who you don't love and don't love you in the same way? 
quite a, again, cumbersome and heavy responsibility, isn't it? But it is one that by the grace of God and by the transforming power of the gospel, we can do. We can do with the Lord's help. He goes on and he says in verse 6, he must not be a new believer so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. What does Paul mean by this? Paul is referring to that most basic sin of all sins, and that is the sin of pride. And Paul says if a man's going to lead the church, he can't be a man who has just recently come to know Jesus Christ as his Savior so that he doesn't think that he's maybe more advanced or something special in God's kingdom and therefore can just take over a leadership position even though he hasn't really learned much at this point. And Paul says that's the sin of Satan, right? That's what happened with Satan in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. Satan uh, thought of himself more highly than he should have and says in Isaiah 14 verse 13 I will ascend to heaven and I will raise my throne above the stars of God and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north I will ascend above the heights of the clouds I will make myself like the most high and while we hear the details of what Satan is saying the real problem with this these verses is this I I I I Satan is so filled with pride and Paul, writing out of concern, says, let's not set a new believer up for failure by putting him in a position that will tempt him to pride. Let's be careful. Let's guard not only the church, this is a guard for him as well. He's not going to be cruel and throw somebody into the deep end when they haven't even you know, really made it past the first step of the pool. How cruel would that be? The new believer is more likely to become puffed up or prideful if he's put in a position too early or too soon, not having learned, not having been tested in his faith. And Paul says, we don't want to do that to them and we don't want to do that to the church because Satan was condemned and so too will he be if we do this to him. Guard him against pride. Paul mentions that one of the signs of the Last days and the sign of the end of time is that men would become conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It is all about me. Again, if that doesn't describe the broader culture in which we live today, I don't know what does. An utter pride and an utter selfishness such that you can't even categorize anything anymore because everybody's entitled to their own category, their own set of truth, whatever, whatever. Paul says that is to incur the condemnation Satan himself incurred. That is not liberty, that is bondage. That is not freedom, that is judgment upon their lives. And so we must guard the men in the church and we must guard the church itself by not placing someone in a position that will cause this. One of the monumental problems at Ephesus where Timothy pastored was false teachers that had crept in. Listen to how he describes them in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited. How do you know what a, a, a false, how do you spot a false teacher? Are they proud? Are they conceited? I've told many of you over the years as we've been together that the first way you spot a false teacher is not by what they teach, it's by how they live. Second Peter is replete with that truth. Watch their life. That's why Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, watch your life. Guard your life, Timothy, and doctrine. False teachers are most quickly and readily spotted by their life. And what does that first look like? They're conceited. They're proud. They understand nothing. They have a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, and evil suspicions. That is not what you need in the church. It's the very opposite of that. So Paul warns Timothy 
to be on guard and to select men who will not be proud. Listen, even for the most mature Christian, pride is a difficult battle. And if you say, well, it's not for me, you just proved the point. Pride is a battle for all of us. And it doesn't always look like sending up red flares and saying, hey, everybody, look at me. But it might look like, hey, I'm the only one who's right, and I'm always right. It can look like a variety of different things. And even for the most mature believer, it's a problem. It's a battle. Paul says, don't do that to a new believer. Goodness gracious. John Kitchen says this. He says, time does not equal maturity. But maturity always takes time. The mantle of leadership looks strangely like a bullseye to the devil. So you take a young man, you take a a new believer, and you throw the mantle of leadership on him. You have just invited Satan to attack him through his pride like you can't even imagine. Paul goes on. He says, so his family... Situation, the way he leads and manages must be one thing. He must not be a new convert. And then in verse 7, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. A good reputation, a good rapport with those outside the church. The church, Christians, we're going to be hated by the world enough as it is. Let's not give them help in hating us. The elder must be one who's lived in such a way that those outside within the community, outside the body of Christ, they may not like what he says, they may not like how he lives, but they can't find fault with him. They can't say, yeah, he's one thing on Sunday and another thing Monday through Saturday. He is a consistent man, even though I don't like what he is consistent about. This does not mean that we will be loved by the world. Rather, that we must have a consistent testimony in front of the world. In fact, it's a a badge of honor for the world to say, I hate what you teach. Rather than to say, oh, you're no different than we are. They may hate your teaching. They may hate your doctrine. But they cannot argue with the fact that you are consistent and you are always pointing to Christ both by your words and by your life. Romans 15, verse 3, Paul writes, For even Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell upon me. They're going to hate us. They're going to hate what we stand for. But let it not be because of our deficient character as believers. We've, we've seen such a clear example in, in the last few weeks. Such a stark example watching the protests that have occurred over the issue of Roe being overturned. We've seen and we've heard the shrill and the evil and the screaming of, of people who hate what we stand for. And at the same time, I've seen people who stand there with a smile on their face, with joy in their heart, with kindness in their eyes, even as they're insulted and cursed and screamed at. Because Christ makes a difference. It's clear for everyone to see. Christ does something drastically different in a person's life that allows them, even though what they stand for is hated, you've got to admire And you have to stand up and take notice. Something different is transpiring here. That's what Paul is saying must be true of the elder. He must be of good reputation with those outside the church. Paul says in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of His body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Hebrews 10.33, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly becoming sharers with those who were so treated. There will be mistreatment, but there must be something recognizable as different about us to the world. 
There's a vast difference in suffering for Christ and suffering because of ourselves. First Peter goes at great lengths and labor to do that. Look, if you suffer for righteousness sake, blessed are you. But if you suffer because you're just being a knucklehead and a jerk, then you deserve what you get. As Christians, we should never suffer that way, always and only because we represent Christ, not because of our manner. Paul says he needs to have a good reputation of those without. If not, it becomes an inroad for Satan to stalk and not only consume that man, but to discredit the church who that man serves. The the devil loves men whose reputation in the eyes of the world is already soiled because of their lack of integrity. It's easy fodder. It's low-hanging fruit. It is easy pickings, we might say. That doesn't take any work. And thus it becomes easy for Satan to destroy them. It's like David and Nathan, the prophet, after David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba. You remember the prophet Nathan comes to David to confront him about his sin. And he gives David a parable and he he talks about the man who's wronged another. And David says, where is that man? We ought to do something to him. Let's, Let's kill him. He deserves. And Nathan, remember, he looks at David and he says, you're the man. You're the man. Second Samuel twelve fourteen. However, because this deed, by this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme. Men, this isn't just true of those who would be leaders in the church of Jesus Christ. Ladies, this is not just true of men. As believers, we must guard our life so that we don't give an occasion for our enemies to blaspheme our God. This is ultimately about His reputation, not ours. It is about His glory and not ours. It is about His majesty and His holiness, not our personal freedoms to live however we want to live. It's about safeguarding the name of our God with those outside the church. Paul also speaks to the self-willed nature of the elder. He must be one who is not self-willed. He's not stubborn. He's not determined to head in his own direction. This is over in Titus. He must not be one who is self-willed. That is to say, arrogant. Not stubborn in the wrong kind of way. Rather focused on love and mercy and leading with gentleness. Meekness. What is meekness? Meekness is not weakness. We, we, we think of meekness, unfortunately, in our current use of the English language as being something, oh, that's a, if you're meek, you're weak. Really, that is not it at all. Meekness, biblically defined as power under control you know it's like somebody asked the question recently with some of one of these again bizarre things that shouldn't be happening you know what kind of guy wants to participate in sports with little girls to beat them up what kind of man does that my answer is no man no man does that right why i don't have anything to prove i know i can i know i can you know Julianne and I get out in the driveway. I know I can beat her at basketball at this point. Might not be long till that doesn't happen anymore. But I don't, I don't need to prove anything. That's meekness. It's humility. It, it's power under control. And Paul says, listen to Titus again, flipping over a couple of pages of title, chapter 1. He must be one who is not self-willed. Not set on proving himself. Not thinking much of himself. And along with that, Paul says in Titus chapter 1, he must not be quick-tempered. He must not have a short fuse. Listen to the position of leadership, whether it's in the home or the church, there are a lot of pressures and stress that comes with that. 
and, and when the pressure mounts and when the stress mounts, if we have not cultivated godliness in our own heart, meekness in our own heart, controlling our own thoughts and our own emotions, that will be the time when we erupt in anger or some other hostile response that then disqualifies us from ministry. Paul says you've got to guard your life. You must be a lover of what is good. Again, Titus chapter 1, verse 8. These are ones that Paul mentions here, but not in Timothy. And so to Titus, he must be a, a lover of what is good, beginning with the source of all goodness. Jesus Himself, Matthew chapter 19, verse 17, there is only one who is good. Do we love Him? That's where these qualifications really are developed in a love for Christ, a love for His Word, being changed by the Holy Spirit. No man in his natural state can be any of these things. These are fruits that are worked out by the Gospel forgiving us, changing us, and the Spirit making us what we need to be. He's a lover of what is good. William Hendrickson writes, it is ready to do whatever is beneficial for others. He's a sacrificial man. He's just. He's above reproach. He is not unjust. Rather, he is filled with righteousness. Righteous thoughts. A desire to do what is righteous towards God and righteous towards one another. He's a devout man. He's a man who cultivates inward piety. And by the way, none of this comes just outwardly. This, these character traits only come as we cultivate them for our own lives in our own lives, then we can be pleasing to God and useful for God. So much, so much of this reminds us of the fruit of the Spirit that is elaborated on by Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. This is not the work of a man. This is a work of God. And all glory then has to go to God. Paul concludes this way to Titus. He says this in Titus chapter 1, verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 9. He is one who holds fast the faithful words, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will both be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Men, we need to be men of the word, we need to lead in the word. This is, this is the high calling that God has called us to. Whether we ever lead officially in the church or not, we are called to even be this at home. We are to be teachers. We are to be teachers of our wives, teachers of our children. We are to lead them to Christ. We are to point them to Christ and to teach them what is good and faithful in accordance with sound doctrine that comes from Scripture. We're to exhort them. We're not only to teach facts, we are to exhort them to live out those truths. As men of immovable commitment, we must teach, and we must not only teach, we must exhort and implore them to respond appropriately to what has been said. And that's where it gets sticky. It's easy to stand up and say, here's the truth, do with it what you will. Nobody is really offended by that. But where the offense comes in and where this takes a man of immovable commitment is when we say, here's the truth and here's how you must respond accordingly. We joke about it among ourselves as pastors. You know, people say, well, you know, good preaching is when you step on toes, preacher. And what I've come to learn in 20 years of pastoral ministry and what that means is good preaching is when you step on other people's toes, <laughs> Don't mess with me. Don't talk about things that would be convicting to me. Leave me out of it. Right? But, but sound teaching, sound leadership, sound preaching is this, that we not only convey the truth, but in a powerful way, a point of authority that comes from Scripture, not our own. We tell people, this is what you must do. This is what you must believe. Here is the one you must follow. You must be able to teach. You must be able to exhort. 
challenge. Spur them on. Pull them towards sound teaching. But then at the same time, an elder and a leader must be one who is able to refute. He's able to stand up and say, this is wrong, and here's why it's wrong, and here's why we must not follow that train of thought, that belief, that practice. Again, it's one thing to teach what is true. It is another thing, men, to refute what is wrong. Nobody wants to hear they're wrong. Everybody wants to hear that they're right. Again, we're dealing largely with a culture of people here in our context that that have grown up as you know winners of participation trophies. Oh, you're just the best! No, you didn't win win a single game. You're clearly not the best. The best is you know twelve and zero. You you tried hard. I'm proud of your hustle. I'm proud of your. Your commitment, I'm proud of your hard work, but I don't want to hear that I'm not the best. I don't want to hear something that contradicts what I want to hear, but Paul clearly says one who would lead must be able to refute. To say, here's here's what's wrong, here's why it's wrong, and by the way, here is how you take what is wrong and make it right. Here's how we correct course. One who leads must be willing to teach what is right as well as teach what is wrong and how to make what is wrong right. Some call it meddling. Some call it intrusive. Some call it controlling. Some say it's getting in our face. But Paul says it's simply a requirement. And if you won't do this, whether it's in your personal life, your family's life, or the church's life, you're not qualified to lead. We must be willing to do this. We must be willing to contradict. Is that all we do? Certainly not. But we must be willing and able to do it when the moment arises. To to do anything less is to be unfaithful to our post. Is to open the gates and let the enemy in. He must teach what is healthy. He must feed them sound and healthy truth and refute the junk food that would come in and destroy them. John Calvin said famously, a pastor needs two voices. One for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away the wolves. And this is exactly what Paul is saying to Titus here. Titus, you've got to do both, man. You've got to live in both worlds. You have to be able to teach and feed and create that which is healthy. But when that which is false comes in, you better be ready for a fight. You better not shy away. You better be fit spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically. You've got to be ready, Titus. He says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, when it's convenient and when it's not, when it's going to hurt and when it's not going to hurt. All times, Timothy, you've got to be ready to stand and execute the office to which God has called you. But we can't do this if we're not ourselves instructed in the Scriptures and know the Scripture and committed to the Scripture, living the Scripture. This is what is required. Why? Because we like to have high standards that seem really prestigious. No. Because you are the bride of Christ. Because you are the people that Jesus gave His life for. And anything that Jesus would come and give His life for is worthy of the highest level of service. You are precious to the King. And those who would lead the church of Jesus Christ would realize just how precious you are and would be a certain kind of man who would lead accordingly then. It's not something to puff a man up. It is something to drastically humble him. We've been called to care for the king's daughter. For the bride of his son. 
to prepare her for the day when she meets him face to face. What a joy it is. And yet what a high and sobering responsibility it is. It begins in us. It goes to those we are closest to. And it extends to the church and then to the broader community at large to be examined, to be trustworthy, to be proven for this task. I ask all of us this morning the difficult question of exhortation. What in your life needs to change? Did the Holy Spirit bring anything to your mind this morning of which you need to say, you know, I need to repent of that. I need to say I was wrong. God, forgive me for that. I was wrong to someone else. Will you forgive me for that? Holy Spirit, help me to grow in this area. Help me to improve in this area. I'm not seeking perfection, but I am seeking to be more like Jesus. And We know that when we confess our sins, He's faithful and He's just to forgive us our sins. But not only that, He strengthens us. Galatians 6.3, bearing our burdens with us. So that we become and we grow into what God would have us to be. We need to first examine our own hearts and lives. Secondly, we need to pray for the men in our lives in particular who serve us and who lead us. That God would continue to fit them and equip them and make them healthy leaders for the glory of God and for the good of this church. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, thank You for Your kind mercies to us. Thank You, Father, that You are the unfailing. Lord Jesus, You are the unfailing example of all that Paul has written both to Timothy and to Titus. You are the absolute and only perfect example. But by Your Spirit's help, Holy Spirit, help us to grow in imitating Christ. Lord Jesus, we want to be like You. We want to lead as You have led us. As we've read, You you are our shepherd and we are Your people, the sheep of Your pasture. You feed us. You water us. You protect us. You, You do all things for us. And we simply want to be more and more in Your likeness. We want to look more like You. And sound more like You. And live like You lived. So help us, Lord, as we desire what apart from You is impossible. And thank You for making it possible by forgiving us and making us new creations, new creatures in Christ. Glorify Yourself among the men of this church who will lead among all of us in the places and the positions You've placed us. Father, I thank You for the privilege of serving these Your people. And I pray that You would bless them with spiritual growth from on high. We pray all of this in the lovely name of our leader and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.